open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, we'll read verses 1 to 18. Our message today will be verses 5 to 10. We'll read 1 to 18, but our message is 5 to 10. Jesus says, Behold, I have come. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to understand this portion of your word, we ask that you will draw near to us as we draw near to you. We pray that you will show us from this passage what it means for Christ to die for our sins. You have been reminding us of this, Lord, but continue to do so and may we never lose touch, may we never be off focus, may we always keep Christ and his death and resurrection set before us. Teach us more of your will, more of your great love for us, and the great sacrifice that Christ has offered on our behalf. May he be exalted to the glory of God the Father. We ask in his name. Amen. In verses 5 to 10, after explaining in the first paragraph that the goat's blood, the bull's blood, the blood of the animals was insufficient and could not in any way pay the penalty for the sins of the people, 
he now says what did pay the penalty for the sins of the people. And that is the body of Christ. The one sacrifice of Christ, the body of Christ, is the only thing that saves us from our sins. This is another way for him to elaborate. As we know, he's been teaching us for a few chapters now that there's only one sacrifice for sin. That is the sacrifice or the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. That's the only way we can draw near to God. That's the only way we can be forgiven of sins. That's the only way we can avoid condemnation. It's in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not good deeds. It's not even good deeds based on the law, even based on the law of Moses. It's not the unblemished, perfect sacrifices of the animals. It's not the blood of the animals. It's not obedience to love God and to love the neighbor as ourselves, or obedience to the Ten Commandments or any commandments that gets us into heaven. He drives home this point, just as the Scripture does everywhere. It drives home this point because we are prone to thinking. We are prone to thinking that we have goodness in ourselves and that we don't need the goodness or the righteousness or the perfection, the obedience of Christ for our debt to God. We are just good enough. This is the way that the world, and even many in nominal Christianity, this is the way they live day by day. They think that they're just fine between themselves and God, and there is no need for them to have the cross of Christ, the death of Christ set before them and as their only hope, their only redemption. This is what happens. And that's why, here especially, in Hebrews, in these middle chapters of Hebrews, he's trying to reiterate, drive home this point, that we should not trust in anything except the death of Christ. So let's see what he says about this death of Christ and how even this death of Christ is superior to what God had said before because what God had said before was only to point the way to Christ. It was a shadow of the good things in Christ. It was um, a meager and a dim reality, but the reality that we can see in the noonday sun, the summer sun of a noonday, is right there in the person and work of Christ. What we can see for our redemption is right there in the face of Christ. It is this face of Christ, in the death of Christ, that he is elaborating right here. So verse 5, he says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Because the blood of bulls and goats do not suffice and make it impossible for us to be saved from our sins, to have eternal life and forgiveness of sins, because that is the case, he says, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, when Jesus comes into the world, Jesus knows his mission. This is likely his first coming. When he comes in his first coming and he enters into the world, he says these words to the Father. Jesus the Son says these words to the Father when he comes into the world in his first coming. He comes into the world and he announces why he's coming into the world. He existed before the world was created with the Father and with the Spirit. The Son did. Jesus did. As the Son of God, he existed before the world ever existed because God is eternal. Then, why did God create the world? Or why did he create the world in which we live in 
the world in which we are the recipients of his redemption. Why is that possible, or how did that become possible? It became possible because of this right here. Our redemption is possible because God created the world to save some of the people out of that world by the death of his son. That's what he says right there in verse 5. When he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says. Now this is very important. Why is this important? Because some think that Jesus did not really know why he was in the world. Really. Some people think Jesus did not know really why he came into the world. He came into the world to do the best he could. He came into the world to try to improve it. He came into the world to uplift people from their circumstances. He came into the world to be a good teacher, a moral teacher, an ethical teacher. He came into the world to just do what was in his mind religiously because there are all kinds of religious inventors and even fanatics out there who invent their own religion that that's why Jesus came into the world. Really, there are many people who think this way, well, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity. People think that Jesus was clueless and he just suddenly woke up one day at the age of 30 and for, for three and a half years he did some public ministry and things didn't go well for him and that's why he was put to death prematurely. He didn't live to be 70 or 80 and die a natural death. Really, that thinking is in the minds of many people. But this verse tells us, this verse tells us that Jesus was conscious. He knew the, what, why he was coming into the world. He knew the reason. And he came with enthusiasm because it says in verse 7, to do your will, O God. I came to do this. I know why I'm coming into the world. There's no, there's no plan B or plan C. There's no haphazardness. There's no confusion in God. There's no arbitrary decisions in God. He is doing all this because he has ordained it. He has predestined it. He has appointed his only son. And Jesus knows his role. He knows his role. That's why it says in John 10, 17, 17 and 18, no one has taken my life away from me. No one has taken my life away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I lay it down on my own initiative and I take it up on my own initiative. This commandment I have received from my Father. Jesus tells us, he tells even his enemies, he tells them he knows why he's come into the world. He has come into the world to die on the cross to save his people from their sins. That's why he came into the world. That's why he says to the Father, which means the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they all are on board with the purpose of Christ coming into the world. They are all on board. There is no confusion. There's no disagreement. There's no conflict in heaven as though the Father wanted to do it one way, the Son wanted to do it another way, and the Spirit a third way. There's no confusion. There's no conflict. There's no contradiction. They are in harmony. They are in complete agreement that the Father will send the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4, 14 and 15. This is why he came into the world. He came into the world for this. And what is it? Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for saying you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Notice with me, 
he mentions a few of the different sacrifices. He says sacrifice, offering, whole burnt offerings, sacrifices for sin or sin offering. These kinds of sacrifices, which are detailed in Leviticus chapters 1 to 9, the various sacrifices, animal sacrifices mostly, and even grain offerings, grain sacrifices, are all listed there that the people of Israel were to conduct. The people of Israel were to obey. When they sinned, and they were aware of their sin, they were to come with their proper offering to the priest, and then the priest would offer them in the temple, and then uh, uh, tabernacle, and then temple. This is the way it was supposed to be, right? God commanded for it to be done. He wanted them to know that they should do those things. And if they disobeyed, then they would have sinned against God. But when they did that, they were to do it in truth. They were to do it with proper knowledge, with true knowledge. They were to do it in sincerity. They were to do it with Christ as the type or the fulfillment of the type, the substance of the shadow, as Christ being their only hope. And when they brought the animal and they put their hope in Christ, that was a manifestation that they put their true hope in Jesus Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, Throughout the Old Testament, if a true worshiper brought an animal, he wasn't putting his hope in the animal, but he knew that the animal was a type or an illustration of the coming of Christ to die for his sins. And his hope was in Christ, who would come to die for his sins. Now, even though God commanded for these to be offered, notice, it says, Jesus says, that the Father does not desire them. The Father does not take pleasure in them. Quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, the Father does not desire them, and He does not take pleasure in them. What would that mean? It means not that God never commanded them. He did command them, and He did desire them. He desired them to be offered. He commanded them to be offered. Leviticus chapters 1 to 9, as one source, He commanded it chapter after chapter after chapter with great specificity. It's all right there. So what does this mean? What did it mean in Psalm 40, hundreds of years after Moses instituted the sacrificial system, what did it mean in this passage quoted in Hebrews chapter 10? What did it mean? That God did not desire and God did not require, God did not take any pleasure in them. Why? Why does it say that? Because we see in verse 8, after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. That's the point we're making, right? They are offered according to the law because God instituted that law through Moses to do so. Then what in the world could Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8 mean? To say that God did not desire them, he took no pleasure in them. He, he did not require them. It means, as he explains here, as their basis of salvation, as the basis of their ultimate forgiveness of sins, as the basis of them not being condemned or punished to hell. It was not the animals that God desired and required and took pleasure in, only in the death of Christ. He did not take pleasure in the animals, but he did take pleasure in the death of his son. It says in Isaiah 53, 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
The Lord was pleased. The Father was pleased. He took pleasure. He desired to put his son to death on the cross, to crush him on the cross, put Jesus to grief on the cross. He was pleased to do that. So his pleasure, his desire, was to see his son die for our redemption. To see his son, his only son die for our salvation. This is the only way to make sense of what Moses commanded in Leviticus and what Psalm 40 says and what many other scriptures say. This is the only way to make sense of them. That they, they the animal sacrifices, projected or illustrated the coming of the death of Christ and no one throughout all history who's ever redeemed, who's ever saved, would be saved apart from believing in the death of Christ for his forgiveness. That's what it means. And that's what he's saying it means right here. He is saying that that's what it means. Further, we see in verse, uh, verse 7, it says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Because God did not desire and require and take pleasure in the animal sacrifices, Jesus knew that. That's why Jesus says to the Father when he comes into the world, Behold, I have come. I am here. I am ready. I am willing. I am here, ready, and willing. We might see a parallel to this in the sacrifice or the attempted sacrifice of Abraham putting his son Isaac on the altar. It is likely that Isaac, in Genesis 22, when God commanded Abraham to put Isaac on the altar, you might recall in Genesis 22 that Isaac said, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the offering? Where is the lamb for the offering? And he asked that, he said that, and he was likely around age 20 to 25. 20 to 25. He was not a two- or three-year-old. He was not a five-year-old. There's no doubt about that. He was old enough to comprehend and to know, and his father was an old man. So this youngster could have easily fended off his father. But Genesis 22 does not describe any struggle. Once Abraham put Isaac on the altar, he did not put him on the altar with the struggle. God had subdued Isaac enough to believe his father, to believe the promises that God gave to his father to leave himself on the altar and even to be put to death by his father. We know that that did not happen. God spared that death, but Isaac was willing. That's what we see here too. Behold, I have come. Isaac accompanied his father. And right here, Jesus says of his own father, I have come. Behold, I have come. I am here. I'm ready and willing. I'm ready to do whatever you tell me, Father. And when he came, he did it not only willingly, but also according to the word. He did it willingly, but according to the word of God. This shows and proves that all of the Old Testament is predicting, prophesying, projecting, anticipating the coming of Christ. That's why he says, in the roll of the book it is written of me. Before the books were bound up like this, the way we have them with spines, they were rolls. They were rolled up. Parchment or papyri, they were rolled up and that's why it's called a roll here. This is the way in ancient times books were formed and made. They were written 
on rolls. Now, we have books that are bound with spines, but at that time, they, they were not. And this is saying, in those ancient times, in the role of the book, in the role of the book of ancient times, likely he means in the Law of Moses, which would have been the first set of books, that is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In those books, the Law of Moses, as it is known, in those first five books, that's where he is likely talking about, it is written of me to do your will, O God. What verses might he have had in mind? He probably had in mind Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, when God pronounces a curse and a blessing in this chapter, by verse 15 he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This prediction or prophecy that the seed of a woman, the descendant of a woman, will crush or bruise the head of the serpent, of Satan, this is first mentioned here in Genesis 3.15. Well, who is this descendant of the woman? According to Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a woman under the law. He says, born of a woman. Why did he say it that way? Born of a woman. Because Genesis 3.15 predicts that Jesus would be born only of a woman, of Mary, and without any cohabitation, without any relation with the man for her to become pregnant because the Holy Spirit would come upon her. That's how that would happen. And that's what is prophesied. That would happen. And not only that, but that he would die. Because the serpent will also bruise or crush the seed on the heel, which is figurative or a metaphor of the death of Christ. Notice also, Numbers 24. Numbers 24, 17. Another prophecy of Christ. He says, hundreds of years before Jesus' first coming, Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheph. This one, he's not coming near to the time of this prophecy, but in a distant future. And if this prophecy were made about 1500 B.C., then 1,500 years passed, and that's why he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star and scepter will come forth from the tribes of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, and he will crush through the forehead of Moab and Sheph. That is, he's going to be a conquering king, and he will defeat his enemies, as we saw in Hebrews 10. He's going to reign until he makes all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. This, too, is in the role of the book of the Law of Moses. It's right here, this kind of prophecy. And one more is Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. These are just a sampling of verses here in the Law of Moses. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 says, 18, 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. 
you shall listen to him. Who is the prophet like Moses that the people of Israel should obey? Verse 16, this is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Now who is that? Who is that that Moses said would be raised up among the people of Israel as a prophet? Well, in Acts chapter 3, after quoting this very passage, Acts chapter 3, after quoting this very passage, Peter the Apostle says the following. Peter the Apostle. He says, For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Well, who is the servant that God raised up? Jesus. The servant or the prophet. That references Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verses 22 to 26. 22 to 26. He quotes Deuteronomy 18 and says, this is referring to Jesus, who would be raised up, and we better listen to him and obey him. In returning to Hebrews 10, we should also see that it says that Jesus came to do the will of God. Jesus came to do the will of God. It says... Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus came to delight in the will of God, to do the will of God. This is what he did. He said in John 8, 29, For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He said in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus constantly, repeatedly, was reminding the people he did not come to live for himself. He came to live for the will of God. He came to do the will of God. Only the will of God would suffice, would satisfy him. Only the will of God. He came to do God's will. God's will, as taught and prescribed, explained throughout the Bible. He came to do that in full obedience, in perfection, 100%. He came to do God's will. And because he came to do God's will, as he did, perfectly, he becomes a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice for our sins. There are two ways in which Jesus is perfected for us. One is known as his active obedience. His active obedience, day by day, every moment of the day, throughout his whole life, until he breathed his last breath, he actively obeyed God. In thought, word, and deed, he did not ever disobey. He did the will of God actively. And then his passive obedience, that is what he did on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. His passive obedience was right there. He did that for us. He perfectly obeyed in doing that too. So these two together comprise doing the will of God. Jesus did so 
for us. What we could not do for ourselves, for our own salvation, Jesus did for our salvation. Perfectly. That's why we cannot trust anything we do. We must trust Him. Perfectly. 100%. His righteousness, His perfection, His obedience is reckoned to our account by faith in Him. That's why the Scripture says, And Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed in the Lord's sacrifice and his perfection for his salvation. Therefore, it was reckoned to him. It was accounted to him as righteousness. Jesus' righteousness, his holiness, his purity was given to, him, to Abraham. Therefore, Abraham was saved. Not because Abraham was good, not because he was righteous, but because of Jesus' righteousness reckoned to his account. That's Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness because Jesus did God's will. Now, if Jesus did God's will, should we also not do God's will? Does it not say in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Does it not say in Ephesians 5.10 that we ought to be trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord? Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Doing the will of God. Trying to learn what is pleasing. To learn what is pleasing, we have to open up the Bible. To learn what is pleasing, we have to know what's in the Bible. My people die for lack of knowledge, the prophet said. Hosea 4, 6. My people die for lack of knowledge. We need to have a knowledge of what the Bible says. How else can we do the will of God? The wisdom, the wise will of God is in the Word of God. And for us to conform and transform our will, our mind, our values, our aspirations, everything that we desire to conform to God, to be united to God, we must know what's in the Bible to do His will. So our life, once our heart has been changed, once we change from having a dark and stony heart to a live, light heart, a sensitive heart, once that has changed in us, the first thing on our mind should be, what does my Master want me to do? What does my Lord and Savior desire of me? That's what we should ask. Just like as Jesus did, we should do the same. Because He is our only Master and Lord. If He is our only Master and Lord, Jude verse 4, if he's our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, then let's follow what our master tells us. Let's do what his will is. Let's follow him. Let's listen to him. Hear his voice. And by the power of the Spirit within us, do his will. Now let's go to verse 9. Verse 9. Here he proves that the Mosaic Covenant was temporary. He's already proven that, but now he does so in other words. Verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The very fact that God had ordained the Mosaic Covenant, the sacrificial laws, and the fact that there would come a time when Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Mediator, would come into the world and say, I have come to do your will, the very fact that he came into the world to fulfill the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the very fact that he was going to come into the world to fulfill that shows 
that the animal sacrifices were temporary illustrations. They were temporary illustrations. Our hope, our trust, our love, our confidence should only be in the sacrifice of Christ. He takes away the first, meaning the first covenant, Hebrews chapter 8, he uses these terms. The first covenant, he means the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. And the second covenant, he means the new covenant. The new covenant that he established. So he takes away the first in order to establish the second. So, this has always been in the mind of God. It has always been in the will of God. It's always been in the word of God. From Genesis 3.15 onward, it's very clear that God has time and again told us that we should expect the coming of Christ to do the will of God to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He takes away the first covenant in order to establish forever the implications of that second covenant forever in us to the glory of God. And lastly, verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By this will, by the will of God, by the will of God, we have been sanctified. Notice it's not by His will and our will. It's not like we cooperate with God to make our salvation come about. God has to ordain it. It's His will that saves us. We do not cooperate with Him. This, is, this cooperation thinking is known as synergism. We work with Him. God does His part. We do our part. We sit at the table together when we strike a deal and we get saved from our sins. That is the thinking of many people. But it is by the will of God. He says, by this will, God's will, not our will, God's will, that we have been sanctified. We have been sanctified or made holy. We have been declared righteous. Jesus' righteousness comes to us because God willed it. God is the one who changed us, not us. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God began the good work in us, and he will perfect the good work in us. The good work did not start in us, it started with God. He worked it in us by the will of God. By this will, we have been sanctified or made holy. And this reminds us we needed to be sanctified. We needed to be made holy. Because we have unholiness. We have impurities. We have uncleanness. The uncleanness of the carcasses of the animals and of the people and of the bodily fluids, all in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, all described it, those unclean things were meant to signify our uncleanness in terms of our own sins, our own affronts to God, our own offenses to God. Our sins needed to be purified. We needed to have our sins taken away. We had to be sanctified. And if the sanctification does not occur, then there's no seeing the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Do we not want to see God? Would that not be our greatest joy, our greatest hope, our greatest pleasure to see God and to be with Him forever and ever? Who does not want that? Who does not want that? 
But in order to see God, we must be sanctified. Because if there is no sanctification, no one will see the Lord. That sanctification has to start at our conversion and continue throughout our life. Our whole life needs to be constantly consecrated, given up to God, and then it is consummated when we die. From our conversion, our consecration throughout life, and our consummation at the end of life, all of that is necessary to be sanctified before God. And how does this happen? What is the basis of it? The offering of the body of Jesus Christ. The actual body or human part or human nature of Christ had to happen. It is through that body. Not our body, not the body of animals, not the body of anyone else or anything else. The body of Jesus Christ. How often? Once for all. Once for all. It did not happen from the beginning of creation and every day until the end of creation. It did not happen every year from the beginning to the end of creation. It does not happen every week or every month from the beginning to the end of creation. It does not happen whenever we partake of communion. It does not happen when any, any religious group says that this is a sacrifice of Christ for our sins or an unbloody sacrifice for our sins. It does not happen that way. It only happens once for all. And by once for all, he means for all time. If that's not clear, notice verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Once for all is not a reference to once for all people, but it's a reference to time. Once for all time. Only one time in history was it necessary. And if we detract from that, if we deflect from that, if we mitigate that one sacrifice in human history, if we do anything to compromise that, we are compromising what the will of God is for us. And we are offending God. Only one sacrifice will ever pay the penalty for our sins. This is why we boast in the cross. This is why we have to think about the cross. We have to preach the cross. We have to believe in the cross for our salvation. Notice what the Apostle Paul said. Galatians 6, 11. Galatians 6, 11. See with what, what, sorry, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Paul has been dealing with people who are trusting in their works, trusting in themselves, trusting in circumcision, trusting in the laws, 
trusting in their own goodness to be able to please God. And Paul says, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that matters to him. He wants to boast in the cross because he knows he has been humbled by Christ. He knows his own life. He knows his own sin. He knows he is inadequate. He cannot save himself. He cannot do enough good works or any good work. He knows that. He knew that upon his conversion. Therefore, he doesn't look to himself. He doesn't depend on his wisdom. He doesn't depend on his sins or even his goodness, his imagined goodness. He doesn't depend on any of that. He only depends and boasts and puts confidence in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is the only way that I can become a new creation, he says in verse 15. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. None of these physical things are relevant, but a new creation. I need a new life. I need to be a new man. I need to have my sins forgiven. I need to be a clean slate, a blank slate, and I need to start anew. Well, how do we start anew? By believing in the cross, only in the cross, that Jesus paid for my sin. Therefore, because I believe, I'm not condemned. I have a relationship with him. As we sang in the song, we can call him Abba, we can call him Father, we can be close, we can enjoy communion with him. We can have this now established because of Christ, the cross of Christ. And if we believe this, then we will have peace. We will have mercy. We will belong to God. Peace and mercy and a relationship to God. He who has ears to give, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to grant to each of us this renewal, this new creation. You have given it to some of us, but we pray that all of us here, all of our children, grandchildren, ones that are dear to us and loved by us, that we all will care enough about our souls and the souls of others to desire this. We pray, Lord, that you will transform us, you will renew us, that you'll grant us repentance and faith to turn away from sin, to believe in the gospel that he died, Jesus died for our sins. Granted that there might not be any condemnation. Granted that there might be new hope, that there might be life, eternal life, forgiveness, taking away our sins. Take them away, and thank you, Lord, for sending Christ in order to take them away. We pray in his name. Amen.